Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Phoebe Watson. Hello! It's wonderful to have you on the show, Phoebe, to close out the year. Great to be back again. (laughs) What, a week apart from recording? Yeah. Just about. (laughs) Yeah, we've done these quite close together. We're trying to take as much time off around Christmas as we can. Uh, For any of our long-term listeners, you will know, but for any of our newer listeners, I do tend to take a chunk of December on into January off which most of January usually yeah so the new season the 2023 season of Risky Enchantment will start uh, I would guess in in February is usually the way we should be with you again before Lent yeah that's it (laughs) so we're looking forward to taking a break getting some new episodes ready and all of those good things but as as is our tradition at this stage we usually try and get in a slightly Christmassy themed episode or Adventy themed episode. But about the only time we can talk about Christmas and Advent is Christmas and Advent. Ex- so, you know, we got to do it. Exactly. And yeah, we're recording this on uh, the 6th of December. So we're having a very Christmassy day, even though we are definitely in Advent. It's still one of the Christmassier days of Advent. The Feast of St. Nicholas. And yeah, so we're just, uh, you know, kind of hunkering down. We've got... If dare we say it, we've got the decorations up. Oh, of course. <laughs> our excuse is that both of us go home to our respective families, as you would expect for Christmas. And so we leave the flat relatively early in December. Mm-hmm. So if we waited any length of time, we wouldn't get a lot of Christmas time with the Christmas decorations. So they're up. We're indulging in some Advent slash Christmas uh, it's been mostly Christmas, to be fair, <laughs> I'm afraid, this year anyway. Yeah, we've dived straight into yeah. Christmas. The last night's watching, which we're going to talk about, was more on the Advent side, possibly. Yeah. A little bit darker. Yeah, and that's it. So the, the our topic for this episode is actually slightly on the darker side. Uh, I This was a topic I came up with a little while ago that I have been kind of keen to do for... Was it eight months ago? Yeah, yeah, even maybe More. a year ago. And that is the theme of Christmas ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And time for the spooky noises. Yeah, I was just saying to Phoebe, it's a bit of a shame. If it had been a really windy night here, you'd have been able to hear very like atmospheric creaking. And uh, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before because sometimes you can hear the creaking. Yeah. But never the very new flat creaks like an old building. Yeah, it, I always think it sounds like a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just because there's like metal cladding on the outside of our, our building. So, yeah. Uh, but of course, the, the wind will not obey my, my wishes. And so it's not creaking at the sort of aesthetically appropriate time. Shocking. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can insert your own spooky noise <laughs> if you want. Uh, yeah, it's a topic that I think is seeing a little bit of a revival. I want to give a shout out to The Lamp magazine. They have for the last, uh, for this year and the previous year, been running a Christmas uh, ghost story writing competition, which the deadline for it is, I think, on Halloween, but is actually specifically a Christmas ghost story competition. They publish the ghost stories at Christmas. And so, you know, it's interesting to see the revival of this tradition kind of popping up in a couple of different places but it's still probably fairly underrepresented in our current culture it's kind of interesting because it was such a big part of especially the kind of victorian christmas boom that happened where they went wild for everything christmas they simultaneously went wild for everything ghost story and so the two things combined and i would say the biggest legacy of that today is a christmas carol that is the one exception Mm -hmm. Everyone knows a Christmas Carol. Everyone knows, uh, you know, if you know it at all, you should know it's a ghost story. Uh, in some it ways, it begins with Marley was dead to begin with. A wonderful opening to a story, uh, but in some ways, I feel like a Christmas Carol has become so overutilized and so much part of the mental furniture that you almost miss the ingredients that are involved you know that you don't see the wood for the trees that or you forget that it was part of a tradition 
of other ghost stories and yeah. you think that it's just Dickens doing something unusual. Yeah. And I have to say, A, the, a Christmas Carol was actually a big instigating point. I mean, there was a lot of ghost stories that came afterwards, both by Dickens himself, actually, and then people imitating it. But it wasn't something that came totally out of the blue. Uh, ghost stories at winter have been part of kind of the oral storytelling tradition since way back to my beloved Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> <laughs> Probably much further back than that again, but yeah. yes. Um, and I was just, I think I mentioned it in the last episode as my uh, my recommendation. I was just reading Winters in the World by Eleanor Parker. She was talking about this. Um, I also have an article from Frances Young who was talking about the kind of earliest versions of wintry ghost stories he was talking about even Beowulf being a ghost story you've got that great (laughs) motif in it of them all huddled in the hall as there's a scary monster outside and it kind of repeats over a couple of nights the reasons for this are I think pretty obvious if you're living in a world that does not have artificial light or at least an abundance of artificial light winter has a lot of very long dark evenings which presumably suggest a lot of spooky things (laughs) and it's a good time for gathering around and telling stories and you know the atmosphere makes sense for those kinds of stories to be maybe a little bit dark and maybe a little bit sinister and so the idea of having scary stories at winter I think is very natural to the ways that we can imagine our our ancestors thinking and and wanting to spend their time. Yep, the world is just that little bit spookier. Not even that little bit spookier, it's far spookier (laughs) in the dark than it is in daylight. (laughs) Yeah, but that over the centuries then there actually became, as I mentioned, especially going on from the Victorian age on into the start of the 20th century, a specific association of Christmas with telling ghost stories or Christmas Eve with telling ghost stories and it's produced a really wonderful genre of literature Um, and some of them and which we're going to go into we're going to give some recommendations some of them are set at Christmas like again coming back to a Christmas carol but some of them are just ghost stories but they were written with the idea of telling them at Christmas in mind. The most famous of this is M.R. James, who's a very famous ghost story writer, and he began this tradition of gathering. He was he was a professor at Cambridge, and he would gather his colleagues and friends and students around and uh, read them aloud on Christmas Eve, extinguishing every candle but one. As he later explained, if any of them succeed in causing their readers to feel pleasantly uncomfortable when walking along a solitary road at nightfall or sitting over a dying fire in the small hours, my purpose in writing them will have been attained. I love that. It's almost like our purpose of recording this podcast. If anyone spooks himself out with a ghost story over Christmas, we're happy. Yeah, exactly. We'll probably do it to ourselves, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and so I certainly would recommend the M.R. James stories. Mm, they're great. We'll, we'll go into them in a little bit more detail, but I think maybe to kind of lead us into the topic, we'll actually look to another author, um, yeah. Jerome K. Jerome, who's most famous for writing Three Men in a Boat, which is hysterical, and I would recommend it to everyone but he also wrote a book called uh, I think it's called Told After Supper which is a collection of stories and ghost stories it's kind of essentially the first half is specifically one set of a group of people telling ghost stories at Christmas Eve and then the second half of the book is just a collection of stories but he gives this fantastic and hilarious introduction to, to the concept of Christmas ghost stories. And we've got it here, we have cut it down. It is like essentially a whole chapter in and of itself. So there are ellipses uh, here and there in what we're reading out, but I don't know, maybe Phoebe, do you wanna take it away? Sure. It was Christmas Eve. I begin this way because it is the proper, orthodox, respectable way to begin. And I've been brought up in a proper, orthodox, respectable way and taught to always do the proper, orthodox, respectable thing, and the habit clings to me. Of course, as a mere matter of information, it is quite unnecessary to mention the date at all. The experienced reader knows it was Christmas Eve, without my telling him. It always is Christmas Eve, in a ghost story. Christmas Eve is the ghost's great gala night. On Christmas Eve they hold their annual fate, 
On Christmas Eve, everyone in Ghostland who is anybody, or rather, speaking of ghosts, one should say, I suppose, every nobody who is any nobody, comes out to show himself or herself, to see and to be seen, to promenade about and display their winding sheets and grave cloths to each other, to criticise one another's styles and sneer at one another's complexion. Ghosts with no position to maintain, mere middle-class ghosts, occasionally, I believe, do a little haunting on off-nights, on All Hallows' Eve and at Midsummer, and some will even run up for a mere local event, to celebrate, for instance, the anniversary of the hanging of somebody's grandfather, or to prophesy a misfortune. But these are the exceptions. As I have said, the average Orthodox ghost does his one turn a year on Christmas Eve and is satisfied. There must be something ghostly in the air of Christmas, something about the close, muggy atmosphere that draws up the ghosts, like the dampness of summer rain brings out the frogs and snails. And not only do the ghosts themselves always walk on Christmas Eve, but live people always sit and talk about them on Christmas Eve. Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear one another tell authentic anecdotes about spectres. It is a genial, festive season and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders and blood. Yeah. I love that. That <laughs> allusion to like the summer rain drawing out the frogs and snails. It's yeah. Like the damp draws out the ghost is great. It's amazing. And I think it's so funny because it does highlight how much ghost stories were associated with this time of year, even above Halloween. And that in some ways, actually, the emphasis on Halloween c- comes from a more Irish and Scottish influence in America. But in England, let's say, mm-hmm. and there was this strong tradition from about you know 100 200 years ago which is all about christmas and ghost stories and i think it's wonderful it's great and i think there's something um appropriate about it in that it's it's got so much there's so much in it which is about entertainment and frivolity like deliberately mm-hmm. spooking yourself that goes into that kind of festive season that allows yourself to escape i think you were saying even like the strains of the the uh the season when you have to be on your best behavior at all times <laughs> you know that kind of yeah well also like there's always a moral to them and yeah. that idea that like you've got some form of a reminder of why you're on your best behavior mm-hmm. to kind of balance out that tension a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, there's not always a moral to them. Like a lot of M.R. James's ones don't necessarily have a clear cut moral. Some of them do. Um, Dickens is a lot more moralistic in his, so it can vary between them. Yeah, and I think that's that's the fun of it is, mm. is that there's a big range of uh, ghostwriters that you can choose from. Like for me, M.R. James, I think the one that we read in the run-up to this podcast, which was not specifically set at Christmas, but was a- about the dark evenings, was uh, the stalls of Barchester Cathedral. Yeah. Which was very spooky. But I feel like M.R. James is so good at his ones always like often pick an object Mm -hmm. and give it this magical quality. And there's this sense of almost like, if if I dare say, re-enchantment on risking enchantment, um, (laughs) re-enchantment of kind of the physical world that like, there's almost a sense of that secular world stumbling across the spiritual world without kind of realizing what's happening. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about like the spiritual appropriateness of this later, but it is so appropriate to Christmas Mm -hmm. that we're looking at like the spiritual element of tangible objects. Yeah, and I think even we, there was a recent, I think it was a BBC adaptation of the Mezzo Tint. Yeah, we watched that last night. It was great. We had a lot of fun, but yeah, all about like, okay, that's coming across the sort of printed image and it moving and like performing this little version of history in front of your eyes. Uh, There's another one about a doll's house. There's one about this pair of field glasses that have grave dirt in them. Another famous one is about a whistle that like if you blow it suddenly, you know, you're dogged by the spirit. It's just a, a really 
great and he he's he's quite humorous as well um he's got a great sense of humor about what he writes but it, it is quite restrained whereas i think to me dickens as much as he's more moralistic he's also more outrageously funny mm. um and i'm always really big on that like i even we mentioned the opening of uh, the christmas carol being marley is dead to begin with that's a spooky opening but it's also a deliberately funny opening yeah that like you know you're gonna begin your story and the beginning is he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> and then like his rant about dead as a door as a doornail. Yeah, he says, I don't know why a doornail should be the deadest piece of ironmongery for myself. I would have guessed a coffin nail, but I will not question the wisdom of my ancestors. Yeah. <laughs> the whole yeah. opening of it to me is so funny. And there's another great Christmas story that he wrote, which is a much shorter and it is certainly a lot more kind of flippant, but it's called The The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. <laughs> it- it's about this like you know if if you don't know like a sexton was someone who took care of a church and uh performed a lot of the kind of uh maintenance care of those spaces but he's including grave digging yes so he was digging a grave which he should have been doing on christmas eve because he hates the world and he's just this sort of miserly old man and he essentially gets abducted by this horde of goblins who are like leapfrogging over the gravestones and sort of pulling faces but yeah it's got this great scene where they're described as like gambling around the graveyard to organ music yeah and like i have these flashbacks like phantom of the opera style dramatic music yeah I'm like somebody needs to put this on screen yeah <laughs> i always think of there's this one line in it that just cracks me up so much but it you know the 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 goblins are chanting at him saying gabriel grub gabriel grub screamed a wild chorus of voices that seemed to fill the churchyard gabriel looked fearfully round nothing was to be seen "'What have you got in that bottle?' said the goblin. "'Holland, sir,' replied the sexton, trembling more than ever, for he had bought it off the smugglers, and he thought that perhaps his questioner might be in the excise department of the goblins.'" Like not only not only is he going to be abducted by supernatural beings, but they're going to bring him to the tax evasion office. <laughs> He's more afraid of having not paid his taxes than of meeting a goblin. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of fun and joy to them as well. They're yeah. just very exuberant. And I think that all fits with the time of year. I think the other one that we read is E.F. Benson, who I think is a little less funny, but is very, very spooky. He's mm. um, a little bit after M.R. James. I think he kind of takes up the mantle after M.R. James. And fun fact for any Catholic literary aficionados, I didn't realize this until I was preparing for this episode, but he's the brother of Robert Hugh Benson, the author of Lord of the World. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, so, you know, that he, Robert Hugh Benson... Monsignor. Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, who became a Catholic. His family, his I believe his father became the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he, he, he uh, converted to Catholicism and became a very famous Catholic author in his own right. But his brother was writing ghost stories and very good ones at that. Yeah, how food a part of the long gallery was the one we listened to. Uh, and it was just great, really atmospheric... And I found it really funny. Yeah. Um, he It kind of starts off with about this family called the Peverells. I swear J.K. Rowling must have read this. <laughs> um, who have a really haunted house. And it's really haunted. And most of the ghosts are like, they're like, they're their great aunt or like just family figures essentially mm-hmm. that they treat as such yeah <laughs> uh, which makes it very funny it, it does yeah, yeah absolutely um but at the same time it is i think it was one of the more genuinely creepy mm. ones as well it, yeah it definitely goes into like slightly more of the gore or slightly more of the like horror yeah. Um, but really excellent. It's oh, still P-rated. Definitely still P-rated, luckily. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the uh, the, uh, the it's funny because actually the one that I would love to highlight for E.F. Benson is 
For me, an example of one he wrote where I think he does a really great job of writing a summer ghost story Mm because I don't feel like summer is as much the time that people think of ghost stories. There is an element of like, we've we've talked a lot about Southern Gothic on this season of the podcast. So there is a kind of horror element that is associated with summer. But as straight ghost stories go, I don't feel like it's the same kind of atmosphere. But he wrote this, uh, he wrote this story called The Man Who Went Too Far. And I, I don't know, ever since I listened to it on audiobook and it's, you know, a lot of the times when you listen to these um, uh, short story collections, they can kind of bleed into one another or you can forget which one was which or the distinctive characteristics. But that's one that like really resonated in my mind. So it's not a Christmassy one, but I would really recommend that that story. Whereas How Fear Departs from the Long Gallery is... It's super, um, super Christmas. Super Christmassy, ice skating, all of the like winter works. Yeah. <laughs> the like dark evenings, that kind of atmosphere to it. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's great. And I think just to, to round out the kind of... Um, stories and, and authors that we're recommending I think we'll just come back to Dickens mm-hmm. because we can't not I just want to say that like if you haven't actually read a ghost story like maybe you've just seen the the, the truly excellent Muppet Christmas Carol <laughs> <laughs> which I would strongly recommend especially now that it's 30th anniversary edition is coming out it's coming back to some cinemas at the moment and they reinstated my favorite song from it so I'm very happy it's a great year for a Muppet Christmas Carol <laughs> Uh, but also do read the original Dickens it is wonderful if you have uh, access to audiobooks it's a great audiobook because like I said I think again Dickens is often very funny and I think that sometimes people miss that unfortunately which I think the funniness brings a real richness to it but I will also say that it is it is actually a ghost story in a way that I feel like sometimes we can feel like this story has gotten quite saccharine. And we're going to be coming to the more specifically spiritual aspect. And I think we'll be talking about how even the nativity story gets put in a very saccharine way, which isn't mm. necessarily the full picture. In in the more secular space, the, the Christmas Carol, which has become the, the Christmas story for a lot of people, um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, you could do worse. I mean, obviously the real story is the nativity, but I do think that there's such an amazing Christian moral weight to what Dickens is doing in, in A Christmas Carol. But it has in some ways become, like I said, part of that mental furniture that, uh, yeah. It, yeah, you kind of drop the bits that don't feel quite comfortable and mm-hmm. just remember like the ghost of Christmas present. Yeah. <laughs> um, or like, yeah, you remember the kind of elements of it, but I think the start of it, which we're going to quote from mm. is a part that you often forget about because it's over quite quickly before yep. the rest of the story, but it's so important in like setting this whole thing up. And I think to me, the few bits that I've pulled out also highlight how much this feels like, Again, we're kind of leading into this more specifically Catholic perspective on this whole genre. To me, it highlights the specificness of these ghost stories for this time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've I've got just uh, a, a few small excerpts from this is from the section in which the ghost of Jacob Marley comes back to tell Scrooge that he's about to be haunted which I always find is is such such a fun setup that you're going to have a ghost tell you that you're about to be haunted Um, but it says the ghost held up its chain at arm's length as if it were the cause of all its unavailing grief and flung it heavily upon the ground again at this time of the rolling year the spectre said I suffer the most Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? And then uh, after their conversation, the the ghost leads Scrooge to the window uh, and commands him to look out the window. So it, it says, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. 
It's great. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? It's so dark and moving. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of brings us around to something that we wanted to talk about, which is the slightly darker aspect of the Christmas story, which is actually appropriate for us to dwell on. I think our second ever episode of the podcast was called Advent and Waiting in the Dark. It was, <laughs> and the story from it is going to get an honourable mention later. So One, we'll come back to that. Wonderful. But that there is this intrinsic part to the, the, the Christmas experience, which is also about grief. And some of it comes from a very straightforward sense that when we gather around with people we love, I think it becomes more obvious the people who mm, aren't there yeah. or the things that we're lacking, whether it's health or whether it's finances, that like it puts a magnifying glass on some of these things that um, give us joy, but also when we don't have them are more keenly felt at this time of year. And so I do think it is appropriate to integrate these elements of darker and sadder things to to recognize that they will always be a part of the human experience and never more so than when we're celebrating the human experience of Christmas. Yeah, there's a beautiful quote here. Um, So it's from an article by Francis Young. Which I think we've already mentioned, yeah. Um, Those coming anew to the Christmas ghost story may be surprised to discover that these tales often had nothing to do with the festive season. Rather than the ghost stories being about Christmas, Christmas is about ghosts. For it is that time of year when the ghosts of those we have lost crowd most thickly around us. The gaiety of Christmas exposes the empty seat at the table and brings home the true cost of loss. In this sense, the Christmas ghost story might be viewed as cathartic, a sort of exorcism of the dark side of Christmas, the accumulated grief that might otherwise overwhelm our celebrations. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think I love it. My grandfather died not that long before Christmas when I was a teenager, and I do always remember that first Christmas afterwards. Like, partly between them being so close together, but also just that like gathering at the table at Christmas, mm. and you know he would have usually been with us. Um, it kind of, it really does bring home that sense of loss, you know. Yeah, and I think that's what makes the moment in a Christmas Carol where you see the Christmas table and the empty seat where mm. Tiny Tim should be all the more poignant because I feel like, like you said, that that's such a recognizable feeling yeah um or that even if it hasn't occurred in your own life that you can imagine this this Mm -hmm. family tradition that it would be utterly changed by absence of any one person um yeah i do think that there is something that needs the balance because there is a, a rightness in celebrating this time of year i think our our previous christmas episode was all about you know, the balance of extravagance and humility. Mm -hmm. And this comes into it as well. It is a time of joy. Yeah. But it is also a time of darkness as well. It's not about not celebrating. Mm -hmm. But I think the wonderful thing about the idea of telling ghost stories is that it allows that darkness and that sorrow a way into the celebration that doesn't, like, ruin the mood. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think so. And I think it's just... it's kind of interesting then to place that within the Christian story itself, like Mm -hmm. the the story of the nativity, because I think something that we were kind of looking into when we were preparing for this is this sense of as much as um, Christmas is a celebration, it's almost a celebration in that it's a victory in the same way that, you know, you've got the turning around at Easter of a Good Friday to Easter Sunday. And obviously you don't have such an obvious Good Friday moment in Advent, but there is a sense in which the world is in darkness mm-hmm. and the Christ child comes as the beacon of light. And so it only really makes sense when you appreciate the darkness that is there. And I think it's really represented in uh, one of my favourite Christmas carols of all time. But, you know, the it's only when you really think about these words that you begin to see it. It's, you know, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Saviour was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. And, you know, these tidings of comfort and joy only make sense when you view them in the sense of you needing comfort and joy. Yeah, they have to break into something that is sorrowful and dark Mm. in order for it to actually have any meaning. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that's where we can, both with the Christmas Carol and with the true Christmas story, we'd lose, in the secular world, we'd lose the sense of them mm-hmm. because the thing that they're breaking into and speaking to, that sin and that darkness and that sorrow are getting buried and hushed over. Yeah, absolutely. And I have, I've pulled out um, a quote from For the Time Being by W.H. Auden. And he also has an amazing section in it, which is actually looking back on Christmas and, and the ways that we have rejected Christ and how, you know, uh, he describes us as the, the innkeepers and thought about the Christ child and entertained it as a as an, an, a nice idea and nothing more. Mm. And, you know, the failure to love our families. It's such a great moment. But he also has this great section about Advent, which I feel like is really relevant to what we're talking about here, which captures that kind of sense of the, the almost like the, the scary, dark atmosphere that Advent is kind of supposed to be taking place in. So he says, Alone, alone about a dreadful wood of conscious evil runs a lost mankind, dreading to find its father, lest it find the goodness it has dreaded is not good. Alone, alone about our dreadful wood. Where is that law for which we broke our own? Where now that justice for which flesh resigned? Her hereditary right to passion, mind, his will to absolute power, gone, gone. Where is the law for which we broke our own? The pilgrim way has led to the abyss. Was it to meet such grinning evidence we left our richly odoured ignorance? Was the triumphant answer to be this, the pilgrim way has led to the abyss? We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Oh, that's so good. And I'd read that in advance, but hearing you read it out, it's so good. <laughs> it's wonderful. And it actually brings in something we're going to talk about a little bit later, this idea of the infinite breaking into the finite mm-hmm. world. But I love that opening stanza about being lost in the wood, that that Dante-esque feeling that we're, we're searching for a father and like worried that what we're going to find isn't good. And I think it's so Amazing. so relevant because when you think about the stories again of the nativity of the um, the angels coming and saying do not be afraid which only makes sense in the context in which you are very much afraid and you need someone to tell you to not be afraid. <laughs> angels are terrifying not cute. <laughs> <laughs> you know that it must have been so spirit shocking to use the kind of mm-hmm. Patrick Kavanagh phrase that is so relevant and Hansers von Balthasar has an amazing section on it in he has a Christmas meditation on the incarnation called Into the Dark with God. Um, Phoebe, maybe do you want to read it out? Sure. On Christmas night, the shepherds are addressed by an angel who shines upon them with the blinding glory of God, and they are very much afraid. And while the angel is speaking thus to these poor frightened people, he is joined by a vast number of others who unite in a gloria praising God to heaven's heights and announcing the peace of God's goodwill to men on earth. Then we read, the angels went away from them into heaven. In all probability, the singing was very beautiful and the shepherds were glad to listen. Doubtless they were sorry when the concert was over and the performers disappeared behind heaven's curtain. Probably, however, they were secretly a little relieved when the unwanton light of the divine glory and the unwanted sound of heavenly music came to an end, and they found themselves once more in their familiar earthly darkness. They probably felt like shabby beggars who had suddenly been set in a king's audience chamber, among courtiers dressed in magnificent robes, and were glad to slip away unnoticed and to take to their heels. But the strange thing is that the intimidating glory of the heavenly realm, which has now vanished, have left behind a human glow of joy in their souls, a light of joyous expectation reinforcing the heavenward pointing angel's words and causing them to set out for Bethlehem. Now they can turn their backs on the whole epiphany of the heavenly glory, for it was only a starting point, an initial spark, a stimulus leading to what was really intended. 
I love that. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways, you know, that maybe doesn't sound like a ghost story, but it actually is. It's a vision of the spiritual realm that then inspires you to go into a more human context. And there's just such a fascinating idea. And like I said, about the Christ child, the infinite becoming finite that we're going to go into a little bit more uh, detail about in just a minute. But there is that sense of it being a scary moment. Mm -hmm. Like what a terrifying thing to have happened to you. Yeah. You've essentially met an army of angels. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that's it. Um, I love how he transitions it to that human glow, though. Yeah. That it's not, like, left in the darkness without anything, but then that inspiration to go to what they're truly being pointed towards. It's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, like, it is an army. It's a host of heaven. Exactly. Where, where else do we use the word host? <laughs> but it must have been so overwhelming. And I think when we talk about encounters with heavenly visions Mm -hmm. there is that sense of it being a combination of fear and awe that like those things go together so even when it's a positive experience it's not you know a negative one like a ghost story is like you normally associate it with there is still that sense of fear and so to enter into that kind of creeping sense that there is more and of course as catholics we're not equating ghost stories with our belief in in spiritual angels and the heavenly realms yeah um you know yeah but they do call us back to that idea of a world which is more than material yeah of a world that has a spiritual element to it which is tangible to us and real to us Mm -hmm. um and not just like airy fairy made up yeah that it's a world which matters. Yeah. And that this story is a story that's happening in what feels like, when you really enter into it, feels like this, when you're reading it feels wonderfully, but I'm sure <laughs> the reality of it would be very scary. Yeah. Since that, the Lord of the Rings phrase of like, the world stands upon the brink of a, of a knife. You yeah. know, that like, that Christ is coming at this moment, which is sort of hedged in by all of this darkness that's both, you know, literal, you know, it's happening in a cave in the middle of the countryside. Um, but it's also this spiritual sense and this historical sense of being hemmed in by enemies. Yeah, that we should be reading it with the same kind of like, adventurous wonder that we read like Frodo and Sam in Mordor yeah absolutely Um, that's the kind of danger and that's the kind of spiritual world that Christ is breaking into yeah obviously with a lot more power than Frodo and Sam yeah um but also as a child as a literal baby and I think I think there's actually a Cheston quote and I I know we're just actually coming to Cheston but I think there is even like a short Cheston quote about being dropped behind enemy lines yeah just like Sam and Frodo going into Mordor slipping under the net like Mm -hmm. yeah that we should read it with this sense and the reason it's important is because it reminds us that we need to be saved it's not just a nice thing that happened in the nice course of history that was otherwise nice that like this is a crucial thing for our salvation that came in when our which was at the stake of our own souls yeah at the stake of all the souls of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, we have a, a section from, I think it's The Everlasting Man, where Chesterton does this kind of genius move, as is his want, to, uh, like we're saying, reframe the nativity story into this dark and scary perspective and the whole section is very long I've actually copied out the whole section here just to give ourselves the context but we uh, we've done a lot of reading out quotes I know but we'll keep it as short as we can but he's talking about this in the sense of both the the Roman occupation of of Israel so this was a hostile force their own religion that they're bringing into this space all of these kinds of elements that are at play that we kind of can forget about and he says there is something defiant in it also something that makes the abrupt bells at midnight sound like great guns of a battle that has just been won all this indescribable thing that we call the Christmas atmosphere only bangs in the air as something like a lingering fragrance 
or fading vapour from the exultant explosion of that one hour in the Judean hills nearly 2,000 years ago. But the savour is still unmistakable, and it is something too subtle or too solitary to be covered by our use of the word peace. By the very nature of the story, the rejoicings in the caverns were rejoicings in a fortress or an outlaw's den. Properly understood, it is not unduly flippant to say that they were rejoicing in a dugout. It is not only true that such a subterranean chamber was a hiding place from the enemies and that the enemies were already scouring the stony plain that lay above it like a sky. It is not only that the very horse hooves of Herod might in that sense have passed like thunder over the sunken head of Christ. It is also that there is in that image a true idea of an outpost, of a piercing through the rock and an entrance into an enemy territory. There is in this buried divinity an idea of undermining the world, of shaking the towers and palaces from below, even as Herod, the great king, felt that earthquake under him and swayed with his swaying palace. Oh, I love it. It's so great. And I think it really reminds us because it can come as a surprise that like so much of that nativity story is about scary things. Mm -hmm. It is about especially that whole element with Herod. Yeah. Like the fact that we have Christmas Day and then we have St. Stephen's Day and then we have the Feast of the Infant Martyrs. Yeah. That kind of like wallop of blood (laughs) after Christmas is such a strong reminder of the church to us of this reality that we forget with Christmas cards. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I love Christmas cards. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that we still need to constantly be reminded and remind ourselves of the darkness and the danger that came with the story. Yeah. Yeah, there's that sense of like, he's already being looked for, mm-hmm. that to hunted down as soon as he's born, you know? Yeah. Um, and Justin has a great line slightly earlier about the slaying of the um, children, that the demons also in that first festival of Christmas feasted after their own fashion. Mm. And there's something so haunting and dangerous about that, obviously. But it does just bring those two together that these ghost stories are touching that side of the reality of the ghosts trying to undermine the joy of Christmas. Mm. That is just like a really important thing to come back to and let it be part of our narrative. And there's also just a feeling of the ghost being sort of thick in the air. Mm-hmm. And in the same way of like the hosts of heaven. And then like you said, like the, the demons in their own way were were present that like, yeah, there's this, this sense of the air like we had with that Dickens quote that you would look out the window and see all of these ghosts everywhere. And, you know, in that sort of more Celtic pagan tradition, we would have said, and this is more in connection with Halloween, like I said, that that's more in that that tradition of the veil being thinner between this world and the next. And that's where the ghosts are coming in and out at, at like at these times to do with the cycles of the sun and the moon. Um, and while that's not actually part of our Catholic tradition, I do think even just as an image, I do actually think it's helpful that this is maybe a time of year in which the spirits are kind of thick in the air like the fog is thick yeah and like I said that's not that's not a reality that I'm talking about but there is a sense in which like stories can help us enter into those kinds of ideas yeah I kind of wonder just because we're talking about the weather whether like we're talking about these specifically an English thing an Irish like British Isles thing um that has then spread and one of the things with British Isles that a lot of other places don't have as much is that snow comes very, very rarely, especially at Christmas. Mm. Like, to have snow on Christmas Day is highly unusual. Um, And it's usually rain and fog and wet. Mm. Uh, And a little bit of frost and a bit of cold, but it's that much more, like, dreeping atmosphere, which maybe in other countries is more, like, early November, or, like, it's more November feel. Yeah. And, you know, it's November for us too, but that kind of wet, foggy feeling really persists in Christmas. Yeah. And it's not until, like, 
January, February that we get that cold, crisp, clearer, brighter feeling. Yeah. That snow would bring. Yeah. I wonder, yeah. But I also just love the idea that like the time of the year also mirrors the way in which um, Christ breaks into our Mm -hmm. world that almost like Christmas is a shattering point in the veil that like he had to break through from the divine realm into ours and so you know you could imagine that this is a time in which it's more easy for the for ghosts and spirits to come in like you said like a fog in that dreeping dripping atmosphere um and I I I just love that because there's a quote from Hans Urs von Balthasar which I feel like ties together both what we were saying about Chesterton's idea of enemy lines and it being a kind of hostile battle feeling and this idea of the breaking through from one realm to another Um, because he says that Christmas is not an event within history but is rather the invasion of time by eternity, which is wonderful. And he also has another quote, which is actually from another book, but it ties together really well, which goes into this idea of like, how much we should take the time to contemplate this strange reality because it's very easy to say oh the christ child was born Mm. but to really wrestle with what that means um is actually so much more profound than we can you, that we that, that we normally think about. So he says, for let us not forget if human limits became capable of receiving God's fullness, it was through a gift of God and not through the creature's own ability to contain it. Only God can expand the finite to infinity without shattering it. And greater still than the miracle that a heart can be extended to God's proportions is the marvel that God was able to shrink to a man's proportions, that the ruler's mind was contained within the mind of the servant. So good. Yeah. Um, I love that image of like yeah, time breaking, um, eternity breaking into time. Yeah. Like that kind of shattering and condensing that's so far beyond what we can like imagine or grasp yeah absolutely and there's these like there's these greek terms for time there's chronos which is the time that you measure like seconds and you know how long it takes you to do something or how long a bus journey is going to take or whatever how long this podcast is yeah (laughs) um and then there's kairos which is more about something kind of monumental something that demarcates you know an era in your life or a particular moment that changed your life and so there's that sense in which two types of time are clashing with each other (laughs) it is the breaking of kairos into kronos that Mm -hmm. like we have this sort of fascinating and amazing moment you know we've i think we've talked again in other episodes about chesterton's whole idea of paradox specifically within the the christmas story of you know the the creator of the world is lifting up his hand to hug a, a, the ox you know that like mm-hmm. all of these topsy turvydoms but that like just even to think about it in the in the concept of these ideas of eternity being this thing that isn't really contained within our reality and breaking through and being present in in reality or in the temporal space that we inhabit coming into a world which we can understand Yeah, yeah absolutely and so that like it's so funny how we keep coming back to that idea of the Christmas time being the specific time of topsy-turvydom. Like, I feel like we've yeah. come at it from a couple of different angles. Yeah, we've got a great quote from Ronald Knox here about that and about what the church gives us in that. He says, about she being the church, she's preserved one solitary anachronism in her calendar to make us all feel properly uncomfortable, not knowing whether we are standing on our head or our heels. I mean the midnight mass, for there is a gracious influence about night as a time of prayer, darkness and light in darkness, and the day's memory still warm, not yet severed from us by any interval of sleep. All that is what you cannot get at mass, for mass goes with another set of impressions, the cleanness and coldness of early morning, or the prosaic glare of full sunlight. But on this one day in the year, for a treat, The church will allow us to have it both ways, to combine the comfortable, almost guilty magic of darkness with the presence of the daily miracle, supreme instance of topsy-turvydom, to go to a 12 o'clock mass at 12 midnight. 
Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And to me, that's so important because there is something magical mm-hmm. and like ghostly about going to I don't know whether I've ever made it to an actual midnight mass but like we've been mentioning it gets very dark very early here I'm currently going for my post-work walks in the dark and that's at five it's completely dark at this stage um, so at the very least we're bound to be going in the dark and there is that sense of like creeping out of your house and getting dressed up in your Sunday best and going to mass at this unusual time that has that kind of, like he says, guilty magic to it. There is this yeah. like treat, like in my family, we always go to the, our, our I think it is on, a, I, I guess I think at like 8 p.m., um, coming back relatively late and we all come back and have our first like Christmas chocolates together. <laughs> Everyone has a little like, treat at that stage like like christmas just begins a little bit before ours was even cheekier um because we would go to the um obviously my pe- family are protestant um to the church service at 11 30 mm. p.m that would go on until like quarter past 12 half um half 12 and you always had a moment like around the p- sign of peace sorry maybe it started at 11 but it was always going on after 12 uh, the way you'd check your watch, it would be Christmas. <laughs> like whisper happy Christmas to each other in the pew. Um, and then coming home to have like, when we were a bit older, have a Bailey's and open our first Christmas present. Ooh. <laughs> so you like start the Christmas yeah. then and then go to bed. Yeah. And and even that like almost that sense of like Santa coming that mm-hmm. like you're lying like as a kid you're lying in bed listening out for this magical person to come into your house. There is that sense of like magic and wonder and awe to it. And so like we said, this is not to say that that was what the Victorians had in mind when they kind of began this big tradition of Christmas ghost stories. We're not claiming that at all. <laughs> We're just looking at this tradition and seeing how it is actually fitting, regardless of how it fitted into what people thought about their faith at the time or anything like that, that like actually, you know, this great gift that we've been given of the tradition of Christmas ghost stories is not only fun, it's not only seasonal, but it can actually, if we allow it, teach us something about our faith and draw us into this great mystery of the season. Yeah, that it is a proper, orthodox, respectable thing to do. <laughs> as as Jerome K. Jerome would say, yes, I love it. That's wonderful. So I guess that's a great place to leave it. Not quite. Right. Oh, you, we, oh, we have to come back. You said that you we wanted have to come to, back. We have to come back. You, you said you wanted to reference a story which got first referenced on the second ever episode of the podcast. Yep. Well, it did happen on Christmas Eve. The story that I wanted to talk briefly about is called Shadows by George MacDonald. It's one of his like short story collections, and they're all like available for free because they're out of print and like past copyright. So do look it up, really worthwhile. Um, it kind of centers around these beings called shadows, which are both like ridiculously um, like gambling around the place, but also like solemn and scary, that they combine the two. They, they play tricks with the shadows on the walls to entertain children or frighten them, to inspire artists, or like most importantly, they scare people in order to awaken conscience and inspire good action. Um, and on Christmas Eve, they gather to tell stories of their doings. Um, and their new human king, who's kind of the center of this short story, is walking among them trying to understand what they're doing. So I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from that. Like, his kind of argument against them starts with, But, said the king, you frighten the children. Very seldom, your majesty, and then only for their good. We seldom seek to frighten anybody. We mostly want to make people silent and thoughtful, to awe them a little, your majesty. On a child that has been frightened. Really, it will do the child good, for that shadow will, all her life, be to her a symbol of what is ugly and bad. When she feels in danger of hating or envying anybody, that shadow will come back to her mind and make her shudder. Um, And here's just... A quick example of a story, one of the stories the shadows is, is telling um, of their doings. I caught a topper alone over his magnum of port, and didn't I give it him? I steeled into a funeral, passing slowly along the length of the opposite wall. 
The wretch stared till his face passed from purple to grey, and actually left his fifth glass only, unfinished, and took refuge with his wife and children on the drawing room. I've never caught him again, drinking alone at least. And I just, I love that sense of like the dark and the shadows awakening something meditative, something that inspires awe, but also that gives a buried conscience a chance to wake. Yeah. That to me really ties in with the ghost stories that we're talking about and kind of puts them in context with the others. Yeah. yeah. And I think it comes through in a lot of the the stories that we still tell because we did mention at the very very start of the episode that we watched something that actually Mm -hmm. is a little bit relevant last night we watched the snowman which if you're not from the uk or ireland you mightn't know so well but is a very famous uh children's book which became an animated classic and it's a kind of wordless story about a boy who makes a snowman which comes alive and it takes him to the north pole and he gets a present from santa but everyone's always very upset because it ends with the snowman melting (laughs) which is very very sad it is very sad but i do think that like all of these elements come into the christmas story Mm -hmm. that like actually we need these hints of sorrow we need these hints of fear we need these hints of you know glad tidings that they're they're all working together to form the great complexity that is the 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 true reality of the the Christmas story. Yeah, and that we lose the magic if we try and shut out the darkness. Mm. Um, that the magic of the snowman only works and stays with you because it ends in sorrow. That if it wasn't for that, the story wouldn't have the same resounding quality to it. Um, and that it's only the two of them together like the Christ child and the slaying of the holy infants. It's only the two of them together that really bring the whole thing into perspective. Yeah. That they, like, we can't just shut out the dark parts of the story that we don't like. Yeah, and, you know, in a couple of months we'll be talking about, you know, that you can't shut out Good Friday and just have Easter Sunday, that Mm -hmm. these these are all elements of the story. And so I think with that we've come to the end of our episode um as usual i think we've got one last question which is phoebe what are you enjoying at the moment well it was going to be the snowman (laughs) but um i've also on the topic of stories i've been really enjoying a podcast called the story story podcast which is a a podcast where they get storytellers on to tell traditional stories of various kinds and it's usually like two stories per episode, like fairy tale style. Each will be about 10, 15 minutes. I just love it. Like they tell stories from around the globe and they can be really interesting and really well told as well, which makes a really big difference. Um, so yeah, would highly recommend. Wonderful. I, yeah, I haven't heard of this, so that's very cool. Uh, I'm going to say we also watched, we've been doing a lot of watching. You can tell the weather, <laughs> the weather's not great, um, but we watched... Uh, the 1994 Little Women. Ooh, it was good. Which I had never seen before. I feel like I always do things out of the order that everyone normally does them. So the first one I saw was actually, I think it was the BBC, or if you're in America, I think it was with PBS as well, um, mini-series with Maya Hawke in it. That was really good. And then I watched the Greta Gerwig version that was recently out, which we did an episode of the podcast on. And now I've gone back to watch the (laughs) 1994 (laughs) one that everyone else has seen first. Uh, But I really enjoyed it. It's always interesting when there are so many good quality adaptations uh, of a a story that you get Mm. almost like a kaleidoscope effect of... What, a, what part are you going to draw out? Which one is going to do this character better? Which one is going to do more justice to this theme? So that's always kind of fun to dive into. And then the other thing I just wanted to say is that, you know, I've continued my now three years deep tradition of picking as a longer Dickens book and listening to it on audiobook as I take an evening walk around and look at the Christmas lights <laughs> and uh, and embrace the season a little bit. So I'm listening to Bleak House mm-hmm. um, this, this year 
year. Now I'm only just at the start of it, but regardless of how I end up feeling about the book, I very much enjoy the tradition of of picking one and going for the walk. So I know I'm taking it up and listening to David Copperfield. So yeah, I can't wait for you to read David Copperfield. I, I I'm sure our listeners will hear an episode of the podcast brewing as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So other than that, it's all that's left is to wish you all a very happy Advent mm-hmm. and a very happy Christmas and a happy new year. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful time for the liturgy and it's uh, and, you know, we'll be praying for all of all of the listeners because it's yeah, as we said, there are elements of this season that can be sad and there are elements that can be joyful and, you know, just hoping the best for all of our listeners at this time of year. Yeah. And we will be with you again in the new year. Like I said, don't don't look for me until February. <laughs> um, but if you want to be reminded when we're back on, you can always sign up to our email, uh, which is there's a, a very short form to fill in on rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. And there's a little form to fill out at the bottom of the page, which will sign you up to the newsletter. So you'll get uh, an, an, a nice uh, new email whenever we're back up and running. And if you miss us too much, you can always go back and listen to our January episode last year on New Year's resolutions. Yeah, (laughs) wonderful. But thank you so much for being with us this year. Um, Thank you to all of our listeners. And I will look forward to being back again in the new year. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.